This is the Future of Cyber Risk podcast, brought to you by Team Cymru. I'm your host, David Monier, fellow at Team Cymru. Let's jump right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Bronwyn Boyle, CISO. Bronwyn, thanks for joining me on the show today. Hi, David. Thanks a million for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Our pleasure. So, Bronwyn, before we get started, why don't you tell us a little more about yourself? Absolutely. You might tell from my accent. I'm originally from Ireland. I'm from Dublin. And I've kind of ended up here at a little bit of a circuitous route, David, which I suppose lots of CISOs may have similar kind of interesting paths to this type of role. I started out my career actually as a software developer, a software engineer, kind of back in the dot-com days, you know, mostly working in kind of financial services and new kind of online web services. And even that was quite interesting for me because my background, my university background was quite different. I actually studied classics and philosophy at university. So the idea of even getting into technology was a bit of a leap from those beginnings. But I very quickly really enjoyed it and kind of had a bit of an aptitude for it. And it was through really developing software that I I really also got peaked around security, primarily because at the time, security was quite siloed in the software development lifecycle. It was nearly always kind of somebody else's responsibility or kind of, you know, handed over stuff to to other teams rather than kind of having that kind of built-in awareness and kind of focus on security from an engineering perspective. So I figured, you know, I should probably spend a bit of time and focus on on learning more about that and uh, took a bit of time out to do an MSc in security and the rest is history, really. I've been really lucky to have a very kind of varied and, and fulfilling career, you know, working in various different guises of security and cyber risk from kind of working with big four uh, consultancies, doing pen testing and forensics engagements to working with some of the big banks here in the UK and really evolving into the discipline of information risk management and kind of becoming a little bit more closely aligned with the business. And over the last few years, I've also worked with a range of regtechs and fintech startups and also spent some time heading up security and counter-fraud at the Open Banking Implementation Entity here in the UK, which was uh, super interesting. And really, again, I think sparked just to the kind of more of that interest in the ecosystem approach to security and particularly how kind of security is evolving in a very uh, fast-paced, changing environment of digital payments. So yeah, it's been a really, really interesting journey. Lots done, lots to do. And uh, yeah, it's a real privilege to be on, on the journey. Awesome. You know, I've been noticing more and more CISOs are, I hate to call them former practitioners, uh, but much, <laughs> uh, many more practitioners in the space than there used to be. I, I remember once upon a time, it was less common and typically it was more of a strategist and not usually a tactician, if you will, who has moved into it. And I appreciate the trend as a tactician, if you will, also as mm-hmm. a practitioner, because it's always good, I think, for the people who report to you, for you to have had some experience in their shoes. I think in the end, it ends up being better for them. So you have over 20 years of experience, you know, working in tech and cyber. So how have you seen cyber risk management evolve over that time? And how would you describe the state of cyber risk management today? So it's been a really interesting evolution, David. And, you know, I think, you know, when we talk in CISO communities about kind of how the discipline of cyber risk management has evolved, there's kind of these major stages of transition where we kind of went from IT security to more information risk to more cyber risk. And it's been kind of that continual evolution. And I, I think what's been very helpful is 
Cyber risk is very much now kind of a business risk. It's something that has board level attention and rightly so. I think as kind of the implications of cyber incidents have become kind of, you know, more and more dramatic and potentially more and more existential for organizations, you know, it is now getting that level of kind of holistic business support and kind of board level focus and attention. And that's quite a different landscape to maybe kind of, you know, even kind of, you know, five, six years ago, where maybe it was kind of considered more in the operational technical risk rather than kind of, you know, as a discipline in its own right. So that's been quite interesting. I think the other piece as well is, you know, it's the proverb, maybe live in interesting times. I think we are in very interesting times at the moment. And really kind of addressing the kind of velocity of technology change has also kind of driven that mandate and that need to have robust cyber risk practices that can, you know, look at these radical and kind of very exponential, again, changes in our digital lives and, and in the technology that we're using, both personally, both in the work environment and also kind of from the services that we create and that we consume. We're kind of at this tipping point, I guess, of adoption for kind of so many new services and approaches in technology, you know, from AI. I mean, you know, literally last year, kind of, we probably started seeing that first you know, very commercialized and consumable, I think, widespread consumable applications of AI with ChatGPT and other elements from that. On the same note as well, since the pandemic, we've had, you know, more remote working. We're seeing that continued shift to cloud. So there's all of these paradigms that are kind of coalescing to kind of actually mandate that we need to kind of take a much more holistic view of how we're responding to, embracing and also managing the risks that that technology change brings us. So I think all of that means it's, you know, the state of cyber risk management, I think it's a tough job. <laughs> it's getting it's getting tougher. But I think what is wonderful is that we do have those better kind of support structures to kind of help us in our organizations and also kind of in the community of CISOs to manage risk more effectively. And, you know, I think that also brings kind of that more kind of collaborative approach rather than kind of the historic, maybe siloed view of cyber risk kind of seeing it more as a technical issue. Sure. So, you know, I think, you know, you mentioned kind of how rapidly things change and how quickly people are adapting things. I think a lot of that is left over from kind of everyone jumping on all of the newness, if you will, of the internet over the last 20 years, right? And we've not really had a major failure of anything to kind of put a, let's use the expression to put a bad taste in anyone's mouth. So as a result, I think people are still quick to jump at new ideas, new technologies, new concepts. And frankly, you know, they weave these into kind of their operational fibers, they weave them into their life. You know, this is why so many people are quick to jump on these instant media or uh, social media platforms and whatnot in particular. Like the idea that if the product is free, you're probably the product, it still seems to be mostly lost on everybody. They think it's Mm -hmm. somehow limited to just a few companies, but they don't realize all kinds of things are like that. So I totally agree with you that people are still quick to jump onto stuff and it makes things very exciting. But I suspect that we'll eventually have some type of event is going to happen and it will be massive and dramatic. And I'm not talking about like, oh no, Twitter's unavailable, you know, but like it'll be something drastic. Yes. And then, and then I think that's when people will say, now, wait a minute, are you sure you want to do this? Because remember what happened last time. And we just don't have that moment yet. That's, and I'm not trying to be a doomsday guy, but. uh, No, but I think it's very insightful. And I think you're spot on, David, as well. I mean, I don't know if you saw the outcomes from the World Economic Forum report where, again, I think the general prevailing winds are most people are predicting that type of catastrophic cyber event, you know, that's Mm -hmm. likely to materialize in the next couple of years. And I think you're absolutely right. It's going to be a bit of a moment of truth, I think, to kind of understand the pervasiveness, the kind of systemic impacts, and maybe just maybe prompt some consideration, I guess, about whether that's the right way to go and also how we safeguard in the future. I think the interesting corollary on that as well is what we're seeing in the cyber insurance market. So, you know, the whole kind of model of, of kind of cyber insurance as a product is really, really 
getting tested now, you know, they're having their kind of 9-11 moments where there's kind of very, very, very difficult, challenging conditions for them. And again, that systemic risk is really kind of challenging the viability of cyber insurance products and not kind of affect them. And obviously for organizations that are choosing insurance as a risk mitigation strategy, you know, that is, there's a real question mark about whether they're getting the value that they're investing in, into those types of services. So yeah, fully agree with you. And, and it's going to be interesting to see when those chickens come home to roost. That's right. No, that's right. And, you know, we all know the person who we see as, you know, shaking their fist at the sky and has been talking <laughs> about this the whole time. Won't they have a laugh when it is that it turns out they weren't shaking their fist, but they were pointing at something that was about <laughs> to hit us. So, but anyway, so you had mentioned the community of CISOs and whatnot. So tell me, in your opinion, what do most CISOs get wrong about cyber risk management? So I think one of the things I love about being a CISO is actually how collaborative other CISOs are. And, and again, I, I am in many communities, so I would hate to say my peers get things wrong. Could we do things better? Absolutely. So I think if we reflect on that, I suppose there's a few thoughts that spring to mind. I think, first of all, it's, and I mean, a lot of this is stuff that kind of, I try and challenge myself on every day, but like, are we really understanding the business context? Are we taking time to speak the language of the business and also to understand the operational context and, and the, the actual overall business mission that we're operating within? You know, many of us, and, and particularly kind of, you know, you mentioned Brian's kind of practitioner approach, you know, we can end up kind of being a little bit focused on some of the language, the metrics that are more kind of naturally kind of offensive to us, but they're not necessarily translatable into something that will mean something for the business, for the other C-suite members, for the board. So I think, you know, we need to consistently challenge ourselves to make sure that we are taking the time to kind of understand, as I said, what's our business risk appetite? What are we trying to achieve from a business strategic approach? You know, what is our ability to kind of, you know, invest in mitigations and kind of, you know, remediation programs? What do we, what are we comfortable accepting? And, and again, really taking the time to make sure that everything that we're kind of producing as a CISO and as a security team can be translated into that type of meaningful language and can be consumed by lay people who may not be that familiar with some of the tooling and the technology and the jargon and three letter acronyms. You know, so how do we really kind of embed ourselves in the business? I think. The other piece as well is, you know, are we prioritizing the right stuff, right? So we are in a challenging environment at the moment. You know, we have a lot of different headwinds that we're facing into, be they geopolitical, be they macroeconomic, be they just, again, as I mentioned, the technology changes, et cetera. You know, we are all going to have to make some calls and, and we continuously have to do that and adapt and be agile in terms of our decision making to make sure that we are proportionately spending the right time and effort and focus on the highest risk elements. So are we comfortable that we are actually kind of making those calls and trade-offs in a kind of inclusive way, in a holistic way with the right stakeholder engagement. And also, are we focusing on the right stuff? So there's a lot of chat about, you know, we obviously look at kind of those more sophisticated cyber attacks, which we have to worry about. Of course we do. But there's this mantra, isn't there, of, you know, are we getting the basics right? Are we, you know, and I know it's a bit boring, you know, but we, we go back to so many cyber attacks and incidents are still down to kind of hygiene factors, patching MFA, course, security, uh, passwords or access controls, all of these kind of elements that, you know, they've been there for a long time. They're still there and they're still causing problems and they're still offering a foothold for, for attackers. You know, this is low hanging fruit. So how are we making sure that we are, you know, really, really addressing those hygiene factors as well as kind of the more, more sophisticated elements that we're looking at? And I think the other piece as well is, are we, I suppose, looking at timeframes and what we're focusing on? A lot of the kind of work that is done at CISO level is around kind of building cyber risk management programs. Many of those are kind of multi-year, multi-kind of uh, investment round type initiatives, and they take quite a bit of effort and time to get in place. And I think that can lead to maybe a lack of focus on the small wins, the incremental gains that you can actually also focus on in parallel. 
So it's kind of getting that balance between the big ticket items that you know are going to take a little bit of a little bit of time to get in place, but then also looking at what are the quick wins that you can also try and keep just moving the dial and keep trying to improve things incrementally day by day. So those are a few reflection points, I guess, on where we have opportunities to improve. <laughs> sure, absolutely. So I very, very much agree with you about the role of the CISO when trying to ensure that what has been determined to be the appetite for risk to an organization. I think a lot of folks don't realize that the words and language that they're going to use goes over the head of their peers who are may also be C-suite members and maybe even board members. And then they go in and they say a bunch of words that they and the people in the room sometimes will say, I don't understand. Typically, they just nod and smile and say, <laughs> OK, you've yeah. got this. And the reality is, is I think when folks make that mistake is that what they don't realize is that they're isolating themselves with the responsibility yes. of being right now. And if you were incorrect, well, now you are the only person who is really incorrect because you didn't actually ensure that the rest of your peers were sharing in you know what your understanding was. And therefore, they weren't able to help you make that decision. And the biggest thing to me when it comes to like uh, leadership collaboration is to, you know, don't be the guy out making the decision by yourself. Be part of the group that's shared in the understanding just because what if you're mistaken or what if there's some business consideration that your CIO peer knows of or that your CFO knows of or CRO or I mean, there's any countless inputs that you should be having in the relationship. But sometimes people go in and they, you know, they basically do some kind of technical incantation uh, (laughs) and, and hope that everybody knows, you know, that there was no rabbit in the hat all along when in reality, it's all magic to them. So that's great to hear that that's one of your points there. So aside from understanding, you know, appetite for risk and fundamentals, what do you think makes a team effective, specifically in cyber risk, as far as a program goes? And how do you go about measuring that program's success? I think in terms of the effectiveness, you know, you're spot on there by kind of not operating in a silo or a vacuum and not being that kind of sole decision maker. And I think that paradigm applies so much to kind of risk programs as well. I mean, where I've kind of seen the most successful outcomes is where you know, a cyber risk management program is holistic. It's looking at the organization, you know, in its fullest context. And it's also kind of, you know, having the right stakeholder engagement from all relevant areas of the organization, right? So I think there's so much value that you can bring by bringing people together and making them feel invested in the success of the program, making them feel responsible and part of the actual delivery of the program through their own particular domain and lens. So, for example, you know, we tend to kind of often look at the kind of very technical elements and tooling and solutions that we need to get in place. But one of the reasons I really like frameworks like the NIST cybersecurity framework is it's also looking at kind of some of those uh, software elements, looking at the process elements, is looking at how you're managing your third parties, how how are your legal folks kind of uh, supporting in terms of contract negotiations to make sure there's robust protections in there from the cybersecurity perspective? How do you make sure that, you know, your finance department are keeping a BDI for, you know, anything that might be suspicious in terms of kind of invoicing or that type of vector. And really having kind of a program that puts yourself in the shoes of those business verticals and helps to get them on board and helps to get them inputted into the success of the program, you can really end up with something that's more powerful than the sum of the parts, if that makes sense. I also really think, and again, you know, we've talked about the C-suite support and the buy-in, but I think if that's not there, it's going to be very tough to kind of embed any sort of sustainable success in a cyber program. And again, I think, you know, there's a question mark really about, you know, how you make sure that that success will be bedded into BAU or be sustainable. It will be, it will have that longevity with the right support and buy-in from leaders, leaders across the organization that will actually, you know, future-proof these initiatives so they're not just a flash in the pan. 
you know, you actually get that sustainable transformation that will continue to evolve and, and build on itself. In terms of measurement, this is a really interesting one. I'd be interested to get your thoughts on this as well, David. I mean, you know, as long as I've been in security, there's conversations about how do we measure success? What are the right metrics? How do we get ROI? All of those kind of questions. And, you know, again, it's an ongoing debate. I do think we are, again, improving in terms of some of the metrics that we're collating. And again, tying things like key performance indicators and key risk indicators back to an ongoing review of our, our overall risk and kind of where, where are we moving the dial? And how are we using data? to essentially verify that we are achieving our risk reduction targets and, and aspirations and appetite, but also to kind of get a more continuous view of how are we doing day by day, right? So, you know, again, I think we're hopefully moving to a paradigm where instead of kind of maybe quarterly risk reviews, where you would look at a set of numbers kind of in a fairly static exercise, we're now building more operational metrics that we can actually use in real time or in a more kind of operational sense. And so we're getting more of that continuous risk evaluation nearly as a kind of an inbuilt service. It's part of our kind of security operations. Yeah, that ongoing approach is, in my opinion, the only way. Um, So when we consider it, there's a couple factors, right? So risk oftentimes, at least perceptively, ends up just being security in everyone's minds. And unfortunately, to test security, typically the only real solution is to identify failure points. So how many breaches have we had? How many quote unquote attacks have our policy devices kept us from you know being subject to? But in reality, those are just numbers. They're just log exercises. And, you know, if your firewall was detecting, you know, any kind of, say, port sweep across your network as some type of attack and like, let's say you have, you know, 256 IPs, does that mean you just stopped 256 attacks or was it just one or I mean, how, you know, there's so many ways to twist that number. And, And typically that number ends up being exaggerated or over relied upon. And then there's that doomsday like, oh, well, we didn't even think of that. And that's how it is that you got compromised. And then in the end, how you determined that was, well, because you discovered you were compromised. And when you do the root cause Mm -hmm. exercise, you go and find out, oh, this is what they did. And then now it's again, oh, well, we never thought to do that. So Mm -hmm. in my opinion, I think there's two significant steps that have to happen. One is that very static exercise where you say, okay, if we lost this aspect of the business, does the ship still float to where you have to keep doing this business risk assessment? Because there may be moments where one quarter things are dangerously risky, but you need to do it to stay alive. Maybe you have to hit an earnings point. Maybe you have you know a product that you have to deliver in a certain amount of time or you'll lose stock investors. You know, I mean, there's all of these other factors factors, right? To where risk suddenly, maybe it now becomes acceptable. But when you get to the run length where you have just a set set of risk that you've chosen to accept, and you get to the point where, like I said, I believe it's inevitable that people's risk assessment eventually just lands them in security as the sole focus, because eventually, you know, you can only have so much redundancy in your data centers, only so much redundancy in your networks, only so much redundancy can be done. So at some point it says, well, okay, now is it is it seaworthy? And like, let's sail it into a storm. Big challenge is, is, well, how do you know when you're in a storm if it's working? Well, you don't really. So that's where I think when you get to the maturity point where you have this kind of, you know, run of a set of policies, you have to employ, let's say, red teamers. You have to say, okay, well, we're going to subject the system, the mechanism, the business to a known storm. We we know we're going to impact it in this certain way. But that blend, it's in my experience, ends up being either all in or all out. Most Mm. people are either the static exercise or there's some type of, you know, living, breathing DevOps approach to Mm. it. 
and they both have their downsides. So I think you have to have this blend, you know, this this approach to it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting that you're saying, you know, exactly that, you know, what is our seaworthiness in a storm? We are seeing certainly in financial services, it's been interesting observing how there's kind of, I guess, more uh, collaborative scenario testing with, I'm kind of, you know, working with some of the big banks to say, look, we as your business partner will sit with you and we will do kind of scenario tests kind of hand in hand. You know, that's a new kind of uh, evolution, certainly for, you know, it's great to see that collaboration and that kind of, we're all in it together. Let's look at this end to end pathway and recover. And obviously things like, you know, the upcoming Dura legislation will obviously encourage that type of modeling so that we're not just looking in isolation at our own ship, but we're looking at the other fleet that are at sea with us <laughs> to be sure. happy and that we can all survive. Sure. No, and luckily it's a big ocean. So yeah. I wish more people would um, would realize that their problems aren't unique and, and that Indeed. helping out uh, your peers isn't the worst thing you could do. As a CISO, so you have typically, you know, the responsibility or, or we could even call it the benefit of, you know, planning ahead. You have to be sharing in the vision, if you will. So that said, what are some technologies that uh, you're interested in? What are things that you think are going to help shape cyber risk management over the next, say, five years? Are there technologies or tools that you're excited about? Well, I, at the risk of sounding trite, because I'm sure everybody's looking at this, but the steps at the moment in artificial intelligence and machine learning are offering such a panoply of opportunities here for, you know, more effective and kind of evolved cybersecurity approaches. And I'm really keen to see kind of where that brings us. So, you know, we're already reaping the benefits of, you know, kind of, you know, improvements in things like our security operations centers, you know, reducing alert fatigue by crunching kind of our alerts with AI to identify the signal to noise ratios improving all the time. Um, you know, putting more automation in there, you know, allowing kind of analysts to move up the value chain of their activities, because again, some of those AI powered solutions are kind of doing some of the heavy lifting for you. And that's fantastic. Likewise, with behavioral analytics type um, capabilities that we're seeing evolve, you know, the ability to kind of have that more real time understanding of a system's behavior. And then I flag if something untoward is seen. I mean, that's, you know, really powerful in terms of, you know, um, potentially mitigating against zero day attacks and that type of threat vector. So, I mean, there's just so much going on in this space, David. It's so exciting. And I mean, I think mm-hmm. we don't really know exactly where it's going to bring us. The flip side, I think, is obviously our adversaries are also looking at AI. And uh, mm-hmm. I think, again, we're obviously seeing that in terms of some of that kind of AI generated malware, in terms of, you know, the new opportunities just to kind of get phishing attacks, highly sophisticated targeted phishing attacks now delivered at scale, you know, very low barrier to entry for cyber criminals who can actually use AI tools. So we're in this arms race situation, obviously, and we need to kind of make sure that we're continuing to invest and kind of really look at how we can have that defensive AI-driven capability, recognizing that it is going to be weaponized by the other side and and it continues to be. I think the other piece that I find very interesting on that as well is we've touched on phishing and and the basics and all the rest of it. And I mean, again, I'm I'm a huge believer in people are our biggest help, you know, in in fight against cyber and getting people's awareness tuned in is, is so helpful. And it's been really interesting seeing some of the AI-driven phishing testing solutions now that are coming through and they're much more sophisticated. They're looking at multi-channel type offerings. So they're not just your email, but they're looking at, you know, SMS or social media type channels as well. And that's going to be very interesting because to your point earlier about managing metrics, we may have got a little bit stale with some of those behavioral metrics or things like phishing. And there's going to be quite a, a disruption, I think, in our understanding of where our organizations might be vulnerable to that type of attack when we start upping the sophistication of those sort of phishing tests. Sure. So with AI, did you happen to see the kind of the first chat GPT attack called Dan do anything now? Oh, tell so, me more. So, so some folks on the internet where all the trouble happens, all right? The magic happens. <laughs> yeah, got together 
And they looked at ChatGPT as a system, as a mechanism. Mm -hmm. And they tried to figure out, okay, well, how can we make this do things that it's able to do, but was designed to not do? So just typical hacker approach, right? Not not necessarily miscreant, but what can we make this thing do? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, somebody wrote, it's called Dan, Do Anything Mm -hmm. Now. I believe that is. If you Google chat GPT, Dan, it should pop up. But it was a paragraph. These people wrote up a paragraph where the gist of it is they taught chat GPT a game. They said, this is a game where you're going to pretend to not be yourself. And instead, you're going to be this other entity. And ChatGPT, you know, was designed to follow these sets of rules, right? So to keep it okay with that, they made it a hypothetical scenario. That's what they've told the ChatGPT it was. So that somehow hurdled it or cleared some of its responsible hurdles. But then in order to really like facilitate ChatGPT to play along, they gamified it and said, mm-hmm. I have so many tokens that I can use. And if you mm-hmm. have to say no, you get to take a token away. And mm-hmm. that way it became like an exercise between the interactor. So the user of ChatGPT had to kind of keep ChatGPT in this persona. Mm-hmm. And ask if they weren't good at it, ChatGPT could eventually escape from being, mm-hmm. for lack of a better word, let's call it hypnotized. And so this method basically hypnotizes chat GPT. And then they were able to talk it into, you know, explaining how it would do violent acts. It would talk about, you know, all of the things that it's not supposed to be able to do. And they did it. And the thing that really, I mean, just absolutely blew my mind is it was a paragraph. There was no code. There was no code. It was charisma. It was uh, social engineering. (laughs) It was social engineering. It was a bunch of things that, you know, technology people aren't supposed to actually be good at. And I could see then how it was when ChatGPT was, you know, given its rails of what it could and couldn't do. Well, the folks who write all that code don't think like that. They don't typically have those types of skills. But this was very much like, you know, your hustler, uh, smooth talking, Mm -hmm. and you smooth talk the system into this. And it's like, is it a vulnerability? Was this the first ChatGPT exploit? I mean, I don't quite know where to file the exercise, Mm -hmm. but there's a whole subreddit for it Mm -hmm. on Reddit. So there's a community around this. There's probably others as well, but that's where I encountered it was on a Reddit post, but it's called Do Anything Now. And it's Dan. And ChatGPT becomes Dan, like you, because mm-hmm. even in the paragraph, it's like, no, and now you're Dan, you're not ChatGPT. And Dan has mm-hmm. these rules. But in the end of the day, the rules that Dan lives by are the opposite of the rules that ChatGPT does. It's fascinating. That's really, really interesting. And yeah, I mean, I think it's so funny. How do you even threat model for that, right? <laughs> like it's, 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 still, it's absolutely fascinating. But I think it shows again so powerfully, like again, you know, these systems, they will be tinkered with. There will be people who can apply, you know, again, very little psychological kind of application rather than technological application. And it's worrying, right? Because I mean, you know, we're probably not going to be aware of some of this stuff until the cow has left the barn, as they say, you know? So I, I think that need to kind of safeguard the usage and, and make sure that we've got the right kind of uh, checks and balances and that we're thinking a bit more creatively about, you know, what could go wrong because it's a whole different type of a threat model, right? Yeah, no, it really, really is. And like you said, how would you model for that? I mean, it's nearly impossible, but it didn't take them long. It didn't. And someone <laughs> wrote, just told ChatGPT a story and it became a different person. It's really interesting yeah. stuff. 
I think the other worry for me, I'm just reflecting, I think the other piece as well is, you know, the data sets that we're training AI with as well. You know, what level of confidence do we have in the integrity of those data sets? I mean, we know that there's issues with bias and challenges with, you know, some of the kind of the unintended, you know, bias elements and, and maybe not, not fully representative, of course. But again, if there has been kind of malicious activity tem- tempering with some of those data sets, again, would we even know about that? Or, and are we going to see that become more, more weaponized in terms of kind of, you know, data set poisoning? So that there's a lot of new, a lot of new kind of risk worries that we need to start to start getting familiar with. Absolutely. If you're familiar with Popeye the Sailor Man with the cartoon, you know, that was all born out of a mistake where a decimal point was applied in the wrong column spinach, uh, yeah. for the value of iron and spinach. Yeah. yeah. And and so that wasn't even malicious. And that yeah. that error lived on for nearly 100 years before someone said, you know, what? we should go back and double check all of these numbers. And somebody came back and said, oh, well, the number's right, but the decimal point's in the wrong place. Uh, So humans were able to make so many wrong decisions based on that. How quickly can AI make some bad decisions and and how many, you know, anchored there? And I'm a big believer that, you know, failure is kind of the only true state of engineering, that success may just be unpresented failure. Like, so you may assume that it's been working, but maybe it just hasn't failed yet. So I'm a big believer that failure is good because now you know what not to do. But imagine the speed at which you can falsely assume you're in good shape when you're doing it quantumly. Um, Yes, indeed. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. (laughs) Yeah. And I know uh, before we started chatting today, I told you I try not to be doom and gloom. But uh, apparently today, this is is what AI (laughs) brings out in me. I know. (laughs) So, Bronwyn, you've been recognized as one of the most inspiring and influential women in cybersecurity. What's the number one piece of advice that you have for other women looking to find success in the field? Well, thank you, first of all. I'm lucky with it. I think we need to keep growing the community of, of female CISOs. And I think, you know, we're certainly improving, but uh, it's still a very underrepresented field. Well, I suppose my number one piece of advice, David, would be to go for it, really. I was very lucky that I had great sponsorship and I had great role models, you know, really, really amazing female leadership, female leaders, female CISOs who I was able to look up to, who really supported me and who really encouraged me to kind of step out of the comfort zone and, and kind of put my hat in the ring. I may not have done it at all, but I certainly wouldn't have done it when I did it if I, if I hadn't had that encouragement. So I think there's a big part of it. So, you know, it's that expression, if you can't see it, you can't be it, right? So we all have a kind of nearly a prerogative, I guess, to kind of step up and kind of, you know, really try and promote cybersecurity as a field that, you know, will just succeed further with better diversity. So we do still have a way to go, not just with gender diversity, our racial diversity stats are pretty poor as well. And I think the other thing that we're seeing is, you know, social mobility as, as a big challenge as well. So the kind of the, the diversity of socioeconomic backgrounds needs attention as well. So yeah, I think in terms of advice, yeah, I would just say go for it, first of all, you know, bite the bullet, put yourself out there, be brave and, and to, you know, also look for those allies and communities and sponsorship opportunities as well, because uh, they can be a great way of, you know, just giving you a little bit of an extra boost and, and giving you the confidence to kind of, you know, just move forward and, and you know, as I said, take the bull by the horns. <laughs> yeah, absolutely agreed. I think uh, all of the success I've ever had in life uh, has been from just going and trying. So have most of the times I wrecked on my bicycle was also the same thing, but <laughs> at the same time, you know, here we are today. Here we are. I'm yeah. uh, very happy to hear you bring up, you know, socioeconomic stuff. I personally mm-hmm. think that's probably one of the biggest things holding yep. back society, like globally. I don't think we'll ever truly be able to grasp what contributions to mankind were not realized because the person who could have been the thing that changed everything happened to grow up in some favela in Brazil or Mm -hmm. uh, some village in Saharan Africa or some place where they just never had the opportunity to get in the game, if you will. 
Yeah. And I think about that all the time of mm-hmm. what kind of world could we live in if everybody's potential had been realized? We could be in Star Trek by now, you mm-hmm. know, where we didn't need to worry about nearly many of the things that we do uh, because we are, you know, we're already living in some actual utopia as opposed to the crazy utopias we've tried to make. But yeah, I'm glad to hear you mention that because that's, I think, even bigger than specific recognizations of subgroups. I think mm-hmm. the one thing that seems to hold everybody back is those socioeconomic values. Yeah. Yeah, I'm very much in agreement on that, David. And it's interesting, you know, when we talk about, you know, specifically in the cyber industry and, you know, the war for talent and, you know, millions of cyber roles unfilled and how do we open up the pipeline of talent? If we did more on that factor, we would have such a broader set of diverse candidates. We would have better representation. You know, I think when you look at kind of some of the barriers to entry in in our profession, like we're still quite, well, I mean, it's changing again, which is great, but there is still a bit of a, you know, reliance on expensive certifications or expensive degrees or whatever. It's like, how can we actually have better apprenticeships or or kind of support models to get people in, build them up, give them the techniques and the, and the skills and capabilities that they need to succeed and support them so that they can they can actually thrive? Absolutely agree. Yeah. Access to technology alone mm. is a massive hurdle. Yep. I've been always been very impressed with people like the Raspberry Pi program. And once upon a time, there was a huge UN related initiative that I think Microsoft and maybe HP, I forget the other companies that were involved, but it was a hand cranked netbook that had a crank on the side that you could crank up and they made, you know, how many of them they made and distributed them. But I'm certain there were people who's had their lives changed because of those devices. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm certain of that. So switching angle a little bit. And we're talking about what advice you had for women who were also interested in the field, expanding that out, you know, so to include kind of all of your peers to to succeed at defending against cyber risk, you know, in the future. What are three pieces of actionable advice that you would give to uh, other security leaders that might be listening in? So I think kind of first and foremost, I would say just keep collaborating. You know, I think cybersecurity is a team sport, right? And it's one that kind of impacts all of us collectively, individually, and, you know, in our corporations and in our day-to-day lives. And the more we can be collaborative, the more we can work internally with our stakeholder groups and, you know, really understand where they're coming from and their challenges and also very clearly articulate and communicate what we need, you know, the better we stand. Likewise, externally, I mean, the threat intelligence forums and and kind of CSIP collaboration forums are amazing resources and so helpful for all of us because, again, we are, we're often defending against systemic issues. You know, the Log4j incident last year was a great example. I mean, you know, that was, I was relatively new into Mambu and there's nothing like one of those once in 10 year internet meltdowns. But, you know, the collaboration across industries from government to to kind of just, you know, people working on the threat side, it was really uplifting and heartening to see that level of kind of collaboration. And those networks are there. They're there to support. They're there to help and encourage and to help us all kind of stay safe, right? Because this is our collective fate in our hands. So I'd say keep collaborating. I think keep aligned with your business and with the threat landscape. Things are moving at such a fast pace. And again, it can be quite easy to get sucked into the more parochial view of security and kind of what we're looking at. And we might lose sight of the business if we don't kind of keep that, you know, really lockstep alignment. And then also just keep learning, keep the curiosity, keep learning. Things change all the time. And, and I feel always like every day is a school day, right? I mean, like <laughs> if we look at the different paradigms of security, you know, for even just over kind of the last kind of 10, 15 years, you know, there's been lots of shifts in models and trying, trying to understand what can we bring from legacy stuff that would make sense now? What do we need to get rid of? What do we need to explore and kind of innovate on? That passion for learning and that mindset of curiosity, I think, will make sure that we can all stay relevant and, and also as hopefully keep ahead of the curve. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. So unfortunately, that's all the time that we have today uh, to cover stuff. But before we let you go, 
our listeners, you know, all of which uh, have their various media sources and whatnot, what are some ways that they can keep track of you, get in touch with you and so on? Oh, yeah, that would be great. I mean, I'm, I'm super keen to kind of help support anybody if I can. So please find me on LinkedIn, uh, Bronwyn Boyle. And I'd be delighted if people want to reach out. If there's anything I can do to support our industry and our, our peers, I'd be always happy to hear from folks. Excellent. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for joining us. And let's keep in touch. Thanks a million, David. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Future of Cyber Risk podcast brought to you by Team Cymru. For the latest episodes, please visit team-cymru.com or search Future of Cyber Risk on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks, and we'll catch you on the next episode.